In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. In making straight this pathway for the coming of our Lord, St. John holds his place, keeps to his position. The delegation who comes out holds him for the Christ because of the admirable virtue that they see. But he stays in his position. He does not presume beyond beyond the place that he has, and because of that he accomplishes exactly what he is supposed to according to the will of God, and therefore he accomplishes it with all fruitfulness. I am not the Christ. During these weeks, these, these last two weeks, we have spoken of position and place, the first week being the obligations of the children toward their parents, their place in which we spoke to you of the virtue of obedience, which the following week on the obligation of the parents to the children, their place, their position, their obligations. And last week we spoke to you of this virtue of obedience which was necessary for the children toward their parents. Last week we spoke of it from the parents down as being the armor of the family and the strength and its protection. But today we are going to deal with the obligations of the spouses one to another. Note that we have not placed it first because it is not really, in a certain sense, the first responsibility. Because the first responsibility is your obligations toward your children and the education of your children. The first obligations are mutual. You owe them one to another. You owe them to each other. And they are mutual love, the marital debt, and your cohabitation. These are all obligations. And the mutual affection which you owe to one another really has, the same, it has quite the resemblance to the other times we have spoken of the obligations, of the affection and love of the children to their parents and of the parents to their children which has to be both affective and effective. And as we've mentioned to you before, on the affective level, we are not speaking of emotions, passions. They come and they go. They come and they go, and they can come and go quite rapidly. They can come and go quite rapidly in the same day. So when we speak of the love, it is always to be understood in connection with the virtue of charity, which is stable because it is infused by God and it finds its origin in God and its goal is in God. And so therefore it is of its very essence stable. But this love has to be affective, which means that at its very minimum it must be a desisting from this ill will. As we've mentioned in the responsibility of parents to the, parents to the children and children to their parents. To not to hold the grievance, not to hold the ill will. That's on the affective level. But love almost must be, almost, also must be, excuse me, also must be effective. Which means not just desisting from ill will, but a positive goodwill. And a positive desire of the good of the beloved. And here, is the connection that comes in with the desire for the sanctification and the mutual edification of one another. 
which as far as your personal sanctification goes, is of its very essence, this relationship with your spouse. And it's why we've told you during the weeks when we spoke of courtship, that if we have seen someone, some of you are married to them, who have brought down my spiritual life, it is a positive sign from God that this is not the person that I intend to marry. In some cases, you already have married them. And now you have to work out your salvation in this valley of tears in a very real way. Be that as it may, persevere. God will always provide the grace. But it is one of the signs which you have to watch over with your children. Because of this necessity of the effective love, of the true desire for the good of one another, and to accomplish the good for one another. The mutual obligations also refer to the marital debt, which is a term which is taken from St. Paul. It is that physical relationship in marriage. It is a debt. It is due one to another. St. Paul uses this terminology. Because in the sacrament of matrimony, what takes place, what is actually the matter? In the Eucharist, the matter of the Eucharist is the bread and wine which is consecrated. The words, consecrate, the words of the consecration are the form. In confession, the words of absolution are the form. The sins being confessed are the matter which bring about the absolution and the forgiveness. In matrimony, the form is the exchange. What is being exchanged, what is the matter of the sacrament of matrimony is the rights over one another physically ordered toward the generation of children, ordered toward their education, ordered toward God. So it's God and sanctification of the souls which he will confide to you, and therefore they must be brought into this world, and therefore on the day of your wedding you exchange the rights over each other physically. It is why it is a debt. It is called the marital debt. It is due. And there are a number of concrete things which automatically flow from this. It is one of the goods of marriage, which is why first and foremost, where St. Paul calls it a debt, he also refers to the abstinence from time to time for a supernatural benefit. If you have not done so, you should all read the book of Tobias and to see the sublime, the sublime position in which matrimony is held by these of the Old Testament, by Tobias and his son and the families who are involved. We must not be joined together as the ass and the mule have not reason to are joined by their lusts. And therefore, when you approach matrimony from the fact that it is something holy and sacred, abstinence for a supernatural goal not only is acceptable, but it is praiseworthy. And in fact, has been part of the practice of the church throughout the centuries, that it is one of the things which can be set aside periodically, especially during times of penance, Lent and Advent. Because it is a good, it is something sacred, it is something which is holy. But it can be set aside for a supernatural end. With, of course, because it is a mutual obligation, it must be mutual consent. It's not for you to come home and to tell your spouse that you decided that for the next month and a half, you're going to make a 54-day novena. And so, during that time, you know, well, 
we'll pray for you. No. There is an injustice. So there is an abstinence which is completely laudatory. Completely laudatory. And it can be even excellent with mutual consent. The second thing in here, which is, I suppose, a, a bit more sensitive, we won't even speak of the question of artificial birth control. That's intrinsically evil. You all know this. It is, it is a blemish. And it is an extreme contempt of the sacredness of matrimony. So we won't even discuss artificial birth control. But we will speak of something which is a little more tempting, which goes by the name these days of NFP. Natural Family Planning. You must understand the mind of the church. And we had a very clear voice ringing out throughout the 50s with Pius XII who made these things very clear. There may come a point in time. There may come a point in time in someone's marriage, in someone's family, in which overwhelmed by catastrophe, they must, or they are allowed at least, to follow a periodic cycle in order to, but the key is it's always an avoidance. Which is why it is a contraceptive mentality. Which is why is it extremely grave. And that decision can only be made in conjunction with your confessor. You must understand that. That is why to go one step further, and those who practice this as a form of lifestyle, so they can start out with children 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, and then a baby, that is unacceptable, and it is completely foreign to the Catholic mind. There may come a catastrophe, there may come a crisis in which for a a small period of time, a certain period of time, it would be tolerated. It is never something good because it always brings with it this contraceptive mentality which is why the mind, because of this affliction, this mentality, it can only be done for a sufficiently grave reason which is why only in conjunction with your confessor you can never make it a lifestyle. Because if you make it a lifestyle, it means you are living in a state in which you live a contraceptive mentality. Then why did you get married? You got married to educate the children that he would entrust to you. And so it is a point which is a little more sensitive, but it must be stated, especially in this modern age, in which it has become, for all intents and purposes, Catholic birth control. And you all know the term birth control has nothing to do with births, it's to avoid them, and it has absolutely nothing to do with control. It is purely for our own benefit. So it doesn't benefit the children who are not being born. And so you must understand that it is never tolerated, never acceptable to be a lifestyle, so that you can just start out with your children 12, 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2. And then perhaps a baby now, because now we're ready again. It's unacceptable, and it is foreign to the Catholic mind. It certainly can never become a lifestyle. And the third practical point, third practical point, is as we go through life, we go through stages in life. With our youth, the fire of youth, and we go through life, through the ages, and become the middle age, it may come to the point where we are not that concerned about what debt we are owed to our spouse. 
where it is not quite, so to speak, for lack of a better phrasing, not quite of interest at these days. You must remember that there is a grave obligation to render the marital debt to your spouse. And I would say with no hesitation, it's especially for the ladies to remember as the years go on, that you have an extremely grave obligation. And to simply deny your husband for no sufficient reason is a mortal sin. It is a sin against justice. It is a sin against charity because you put them in a precarious position. It's a practical point. We deal with it as sensitively as we can, but since it deals with this whole sacrament of matrimony, it is an obligation which you have to one another. It is a marital debt. And you must always see it as an obligation of justice, because this is what it is. An obligation of justice. And on the third part of this mutual obligation is living in common, which you may seem to, again, once to see one of these things as being a truism. We get married, we live in common, of course. Times come and times go in which that is not always going to be the easiest thing to be accomplished. But there is a great obligation for life in common. Life in common. Which means that for a certain point in time it may be necessary for the man of the house to be out of the house because of financial needs and traveling or whatever. But you must never let it to become overwhelming so that daddy is gone most of the time. Because he's gone all week long, all weekend long, all the time. There is an obligation of a life in common of the spouses with one another. It is what the church calls, in, she calls it in common of roof and bed, marital debt and your common life, mutual companionship. It is also one of the goods of matrimony is to have someone to support you throughout your life. And therefore this life in common is necessary and, and must, be, must be kept and must be fostered. Must be fostered life in common. It is easy that you can come to the point where you both basically develop two parallel currents. But you must always remember that you have married one another and you are two in one flesh. And it is to be a life in common. And you must foster that. You must work toward that. And you must keep it going. You must nurture it and nourish it. In this epistle of this morning, St. Paul, writing to the Philippians, tells them, Let your modesty be known to all men. This modesty, moderation, and discretion, which in the things dealing with matrimony are the most necessary. Moderation, virtue, discretion, charity. And why does he say, let your modesty be known to all men? The Lord is near. Our Lord returns in judgment. And therefore you treat of these things with a moderation and with a virtue and with a sanctity. It is once again to elevate this ideal of what we have for the virtue or for the sacrament of matrimony. In the obligations of the man of the household, I think that it was reasonably clear last Sunday, so it wouldn't necessarily be to go into great detail once again. But just briefly to remind you again of your headship, that you must be the head of the family. And it is the obligation to guide your wife and to guide your families, to guide your children. They look to you, they look to you correctly. But when they look to you, you must be able to give that guidance. It is a great obligation. You are also in the second place, which we did not cover that much last week, is that you are to provide, gentlemen, for your wives. 
You are to provide for your wives. Which means that you must make it possible for her to run the household. With the allowance which is given, which are things which are set aside for the running of that household. But what you may not also know is that you have to even provide something so that your wives can do acts of charity. They have the means. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. It could be time, whatever. But you must provide them in some way that they can also do charity over and above their strict obligations of justice. It is an obligation that you have to keep your wives and your children, to provide for them, but also to allow for them to do acts of charity over and above. If your wife tells you she needs X amount of dollars for the month and you give her just that amount and nothing more, you must allow her something to do a little bit of charity on the side. And the third part, which we did not go over in great detail, but it's just to remind you, is that it's an obligation, as the husbands and the fathers of your household, to administer the properties, the property, whatever you may own, you must administer wisely. It's an obligation you have to your wives. It's an obligation you have to God first, because it deals with the virtue of justice. But it is also an obligation you have towards your wives and your children. How many families have suffered because dad does not know how to deal with the temporal world? So the children suffer, their wives suffer, because dad doesn't have a clue. It is part of your obligation as father. And at the end of, the, at the end of August, when we spoke of the office of paternity at the double wedding that we had at the end of August, it is to understand that when you presented yourself at the altar, that you were anointed at that moment in this office of paternity to deal with both the spiritual and the temporal order of your families. And you have an obligation, a grave obligation, to administer wisely the property which belongs to your family. It is an obligation. And in this modesty which is to be made known to all men, there's also the obligations of the wife. And if there is a place where moderation is to be seen before all men, it, the, that obligation truly lies upon the, the shoulders of the women. We have all come across the ladies who we have met, who have been the epitome of discretion and moderation. And for that reason we call them ladies. If this moderation is to be made known before all men, this modesty, this moderation then it is especially seen in the household by the deportment of the wife, of the mother. And the first of her obligations is in this reverence and this obedience to her husband. And of course, as we mentioned last week, it is so much easier for your children and for your wives to be obedient when you are worthy of respect and reverence. And always recalling that the term of obedience means to listen. Each in his own place. Each in his own position. The armor of the family is the virtue of obedience because the children are taught to listen. There is not a debate. They listen. Obedience. And if there is to be a certain due reverence and obedience from the wives to their husbands, it is to be understood that the fathers are able to speak and to direct so that there is something to listen to. And as we spoke to you last week, 
again to remember the importance that you must be there in that position, that fountainhead of unity and direction in your households, so that there is a voice which directs, so that there is something to hear, there is something to be obedient to. So the wives owe this obligation, they have an obligation, they owe this obedience, this reverence to their husbands. They have also the primary obligation to pay the careful attention to the running of the interior of the domestic, of the household, and to the education of your children. It's part of the obligation for you as wives, as mothers. The running of your domestic, the interior of the house, the family, and of running and watching over, supervising your children's education. This is why it boggles the mind of how, during these recent years of this century, how it could ever have entered into women's minds to be working away from their children, outside of their household. Who could possibly have time when they fulfill their obligations of state? We have seen a complete revolution in these concepts. And so you have a strict obligation to pay attention over your household, over your children, and specifically to their education, how they are being trained, how they are being taught to listen. Be nothing solicitous. Do not be anxious. St. Paul goes on with the same epistle. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with gratitude, which is going to be a virtue we're going to speak of in the next few weeks. Gratitude. It is a virtue. It's not, a, it's not a, an, an ed, just a part of etiquette or a social nicety. It is a virtue. Gratitude. So to make everything, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your petitions be known to God. So this moderation, this modesty, this sanctity in the household is founded upon a life of prayer of the obligations, the mutual obligations you have to one another as spouses, the obligations which you must, by that example, as we mentioned last week, train your children toward. If your children see their parents in a peace and a supernatural atmosphere, they will necessarily desire the same. If you just simply tell them to be that way, it will never work. You must be the ones who shine forth an example. We mentioned to you earlier that during this week we had been in, <clears throat> we had the good fortune to be able to travel to Kansas. Well, going to Kansas wasn't necessarily the good fortune. The good fortune was to be able to view a magnificent exhibit which is put on in Topeka on the treasures of the czars. It is probably one of the finest exhibits which I have viewed in a museum period, and certainly the finest of, the finest of all the Russian exhibits which I've seen, which is makes the fourth. I've done one on Catherine the Great. She was depraved, but she was a great political leader. That was in Memphis, Tennessee. Juno, Alaska has an exhibit going on for the centennial of Russian Orthodoxy in North America. And the Fabergé collection of these eggs, these jeweled eggs, was in Detroit, say, about eight years ago. This one we had to make a special effort to get to. But it was the finest of all of them. 
Now, the reason why we're bringing up these orthodox schismatics is not because they're schismatics. So, before you become horrified, just stop. What was displayed in this presentation was the intense and the profound religiosity of these people. Russia, the Russian state, not the modern one now because of evolution, but the, the Russian state is founded upon religion in its intensity, which is why I am sure that it has a connection with Fatima. The consecrations of the czars of Russia until the 19th century were purely religious ceremonies. They did not have the connotation of politics as so often was found in the Western monarchies. And as we speak this morning of these different things, of these schismatics, it should only bring to shame that if these who are outside of the church have such an intensity in their devotion to God, as wrong as the path may be, how much more so should we be? During this exhibit, there was one of the rooms set aside for the private lives of the czars, which was interesting. More than half of the objects in this exhibit are religious. So when you look at this exquisite tabernacle, and the write-up that goes with it, the description of it is that what the Russian people tried to accomplish, and this was one of the main intents of this exhibit, was to show that beauty was the manifestation of the presence of grace, which is why it ties in well with the Advent theme. God's coming by grace. But the beauty was also to be expressive of the presence of the Holy Ghost. And when you would look at some of these objects, which are beyond belief in their beauty, and the intricacy of the workmanship. The description which is given just simply says that for the people this was completely normal to have these enormous gemstones on, say, a tabernacle. Because it was completely natural for them to return to God in the worship of God, the adoration of God, using the things which God had blessed the earth with. It's a completely natural sentiment of the religious spirit but in this one section, this one room of the, of the private lives of the czars, there was an icon of the nativity and a crucifix. And you'll see shortly why I'm bringing this up. This icon of the nativity, of the birth of our divine Lord, and of this crucifix, in the write-up was describing the fact that if these two were not used as such, they were like the ones which were placed at the head of the matrimonial bed. The day of matrimony. It is an intense understanding of a religious spirit. At the first of the czars of the Romanov dynasty, that his parents, after being married for a while, time passed, they consecrated themselves in religion. When Mikhail Romanov was consecrated as Tsar, his father was the patriarch of Moscow and his mother was a nun. She is known to this day as Martha the Nun. That's all her title is. 
the write-up and the write-up of the descriptions that were going on saying this was not uncommon of the Russian people. They would marry, they would have their children, and then they would go into religious life. These people are schismatics, my friends. So where do we, who have the Catholic faith, stand? I bring up one concrete point in the application here is that I'm sure that none of you know that in the Western Rite and the Latin Rite that there is in the Roman ritual which is the book of sacraments and of the book of blessings it has the blessings in it but there is a, a blessing for the matrimonial bed I'm sure none of you knew of it I'm sure none of you have ever seen it done. And it is a shame. That's why I've given an example of these Orthodox. In fact, they reminded me this week to bring up this one specific point. Of the blessing of the matrimonial chamber. Now the modern world would just cringe and roll its eyes back and say, Oh, there goes the church again. Now they're in our bedroom in a real way. Isn't this just great? They're all over the place. The church is not anywhere. The church is something. And you, by Catholics, are part of the church. By the very fact that you are wed in the sacrament of matrimony, the church is in your bedroom. Period. By the fact that you live and breathe and walk through your house, the church is present in your households. By the fact that your children have been baptized as members of the mystical body of Christ, the church is in your family. The blessings are only there to manifest and to augment this life of grace which must be there already. This blessing of the matrimonial bed. Bless, O Lord, this bridal chamber that all who dwell in it may be established in thy peace. The tranquility of order, the presence of God's grace. That they be established in thy peace that they may remain in thy will always seeking, following God's will. Is this beneficial to my family or is this not? Is this in the order of grace and holiness or is it not? To keep them in thy will, that they may grow together to old age, which of course is just a parallel with the blessings of the nuptial mass that you received. And may you see your children's children to the third and fourth generation. May they grow old together and during the length of years, and may they multiply during the length of years. You see NFP is completely foreign to a Catholic mind. They may multiply during the length, it literally says during the length of days, in longitudinem dierum, but it has a connotation of life. May they multiply throughout their lives. And may they arrive finally at the kingdom of heaven. Because it is the reason why you have been wed, is to arrive at the vision of God face to face. When you bring all these things together and to understand the profound holiness which God has called you to by the fact that you have been wed in the sacrament of matrimony, to put all of it in the context of all of these weeks, Hopefully you have come to an appreciation of the sublime holiness of the sacrament of matrimony 
in itself, regardless of any other trappings, but the sacrament itself, of the sublime sanctity, that it is something sacred in itself, something holy, and must always be treated with that moderation and that respect and that charity, which must be associated with our treating of anything holy. You kneel at communion. You show this profound reverence. You genuflect before the Blessed Sacrament. It is true that in the Sacrament of Matrimony, our Lord is not present substantially, but He is present all the same, my friends. He is present by His grace. And this is why the blessing of a matrimonial chamber or the placing of an icon or crucifix at the head of this bed is something which is completely, we can hardly say natural, because it's logically supernatural, but completely logical in the expression of this faith. It is why it must also be something sacred in preparation. And you must begin with your little ones in preparing them for a life which is profoundly influenced by the grace of God. And therefore, in this sacrament, which is holy in itself, it must be also be holy in preparation. There must be a continual augmentation of the spiritual life, so that on the day of matrimony, your children are to be more elevated in the life of grace than they were the year before, the year before that. There has been a continual progression in the life of Christ. And therefore, not only is the sacrament holy in itself and in its preparation, but it also must be sacred in its exercise, in its use. It must be dealt with in the way of all things which are sacred and holy. Matrimony holy in itself, holy in its preparation, and holy in its exercise. All of these things, I hope, have penetrated somewhat into your mind a little more over these last two months. And the hours and hours, literally hours and hours of sermons, some sermons just an hour. But all this time to impress upon you, because as I mentioned last week, we can have all of the Christ King processions that you want, and it's going to accomplish a diddly squat. Until the day that Christ reigns in your homes, and that reign of Christ begins in your use of matrimony, in an awe of the majesty of God which manifests itself through this sacrament, which is why St. Paul simply says in the Ephesians, I speak of a great sacrament, a great mystery, Christ and his church. You are a manifestation and a living image and a reality of Christ's church and of our divine Lord. Which is simply why when you put all these things together, the epistle which finishes this morning fits in in a very fine way. When St. Paul simply says, and may the peace of Christ, the peace of God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, this tranquility of order, which is the first thing asked for in the blessing of the matrimonial chamber, that may thy peace, may they be established in thy peace, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, because it is, an under, it is a grace beyond this world. It is a tranquility and a serenity which only God can give, and when there is agitation and turmoil, it is a sign that it is not from God. Each in his own place. Father of unity, father source of unity, and the fountainhead of direction. Mother in her moderation, and the discretion, and the children in their obedience, who listen. 
And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts. If there's any sacrament which is associated with heart, it must be the sacrament of matrimony. But the heart is the will, not the emotions. And so what St. Paul prays that this peace of God, keep the heart, establish the hearts, your wills, and your minds, because you must always think with an intellect illuminated by the virtue of the faith, that may this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The reason why we exist is the glorification of God. The reason why you are wed is for the glorification of God. The reason why you educate your children is for the glorification of God. The sacrament of matrimony, holy in itself, sacred in its preparation, and held in awe and esteem, a religious esteem of the sacredness in its use and in its exercise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.